welcome to the Politics of Prosecution podcast, Season 1, Episode 23. You're here with Taylor Cunningham, Sophia Lawson, Sarah Culver, and Madeline O'Connor. And today we will be discussing the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, how the CFAA increases prosecutorial power due to its broad definitions of what could be considered a crime, past CFAA cases, and the first case involving CFAA to appear before the Supreme Court, Van Buren versus the United States which is on the Supreme Court schedule for later this month. We have seen an increase in cybercrimes over the last several years, and it has become an important issue. While most of us value privacy, information security, net neutrality, and have opinions on issues related to censorship, there are complicated laws that govern how the internet can and cannot function. So, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act has a gray area that's controversial and that many believe should be reformed. So, let's begin to analyze the act. Thanks, Maddie. So, some background on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which we will be calling the CFAA for the most part. Um, It was enacted in in 1986 as an amendment to the first Computer Fraud Act, and it was originally intended for hacking, but over the past years, computer crimes have gone from being non-existent to being involved in almost every aspect regarding technology and computers. So, it's changed and now covers a broad amount of computer crimes far beyond the original intent. The maximum sentence in the amendments is 20 years for obtaining national security information, but individuals could face one to five years with a max of 10 years for accessing a computer and obtaining information. One of the prohibitions within the act, which is relevant in many of the cases we will discuss later, is intentionally accessing a computer without authorization or in excess of authorization. So the CFAA defines exceeds authorized access as to access a computer with authorization and to use such access to obtain or alter information in the computer that the accessor is not entitled so to obtain or alter. So even though it does define this kind of term, it doesn't define without authorization. Um, So the first term we can define that's defined in the act is protected computers. And this is a term used in Title 18, Section 1030 of the United States Code of the CFAA. Um, This prohibits a number of different kinds of conduct, generally involving unauthorized access to or damage to the data stored on protected computers. Um, The statute, as amended by the National Information Infrastructure Protection Act of 1996, um, defines protected computers as follows. So the first of which is A, exclusively for the use of a financial institution or the United States government, or in the case of a computer not exclusively for such use, used by or for a financial institution or the United States government, and the conduct constituting the offense affects that use by or for the financial institution or the government. Or, um, as B, a computer which is used in interstate or foreign commerce for communication, including a computer located outside the United States that is used in a manner that affects interstate or foreign commerce or communication of the United States. Yeah, so the law prohibits unauthorized obtaining of information from any protected computer if the conduct involved an interstate or foreign communication and makes it a felony to intentionally transmit malware to a protected computer if more than $5,000 in damage, such as to the integrity of data, were to result. 
So, as we're listening to the specifics of this act, it just sounds like there's so much prosecutorial power involved because the act is so vague. And so, it allows prosecutors to bring charges that should not fall under this act to harsher sentencing, which is essentially punishing a target behavior of the defendant through a really unfair lens because it's giving prosecutors so much power with its wording. And according to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Compounding this problem is the CFAA's disproportionately harsh penalty scheme. Even first-time offenses for accessing a protected computer without sufficient authorization can be punishable by up to five years in prison each, 10 years for repeated offenses, and then there's fines. Violations of other parts of the CFAA are punishable by up to 10 years, 20 years, and even life in prison. So, justifiably, many have argued that this act has the power to criminalize everyday behavior of everyday citizens, meaning that it definitely provides too much prosecutorial power. So in order to look at the power of the act, each of us has chosen one past case where the CFAA has been utilized. All of these cases are also mentioned in the briefs for Van Buren versus U.S. So, let's delve into the case history slash past cases dealing with the CFAA. The first case we're going to talk about is United States versus Rodriguez, which occurred in 2010 um, with Roberto Rodriguez as the defendant. He was a teleservice representative for the Social Security Administration from 1995 to 2009 and had access to administrative databases containing sensitive information, including anyone's social security number, address, date of birth, income, names of like their family members, etc., etc. So the administration established a policy that prohibited employees from obtaining information without a business reason and informed all employees violation could result in criminal penalties. Now, Rodriguez did in fact access information of 17 different people for non-business reasons without their knowledge, including the information of one ex-domestic partner, which he did 62 times, and a woman who he had a crush on, which he did 65 times. In April, on April 2nd, 2009, a grand jury indicted Rodriguez with 17 misdemeanor counts of violating the CFAA. He testified that he had accessed the personal information as part of a whistleblower operation to test whether his unauthorized use of the databases would trigger the attention of the administration because he was conducting an investigation into improper denials of disability benefits. The jury found him guilty on all counts, though. His conviction and sentence was then affirmed by a court of appeals. So this was the first case that demonstrated an individual that violated Section 1030A2 of the CFAA if he uses a computer to access information that he is otherwise authorized to access, but does so for an improper purpose. Um, this basically just says a person with access to a computer for business reasons exceeds his authorized access whenever he obtains information for a non-business reason. Under Rodriguez, exceeding authorized access is achieved by running a search on a database you have access to for inappropriate reasons, which is precisely what he did. Yeah, but naturally, that definition would criminalize so much behavior, so many courts have since rejected that interpretation of the CFAA. So the next case that we're going to talk about is John v. United States um, in 2013. So John was employed at Citigroup as a manager and 
provided her half-brother with customer account information pertaining to at least 76 corporate customer accounts um, of customers which she had collected from the internal computer system. She provided the information in the form of either scanned images of checks or printouts of the computer screens of the customers. Her half-brother and his co-conspirators incurred $78,750 worth of fraudulent charges on four different customer accounts. She was found guilty by the United States District Court for the Northern District of Texas for conspiracy to commit access device fraud in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 371, fraud in connection with an access device and aiding and embedding in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1029, and exceeding authorized access to a protected computer in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1030. John appealed, arguing that she was authorized to use Citigroup's internal computer system as an employee and contended that the CFAA does not prohibit unlawful use of material and that she was allowed to access through the authorized use of a computer. The court found that although John was authorized to view and print all of the information she had access to, her use of Citigroup's computer system to run fraudulent charges was not an intended use of that system. So they concluded that John exceeded the authorized access to a protected computer within the meaning of the CFAA. So now let's look at an interesting case to say the least, United States versus Vail, 2015. So Vail was an officer in the New York City Police Department at the time of the events going on. He was also an active member of an internet sex fetish community called the Dark Fetish Network very creative name. (laughs) As an NYPD officer, he had access to Omnix Force Mobile, which we'll call OFM, which allows officers to search restricted databases, including the Federal National Crime Information Center database, which contains very sensitive information about citizens of the U.S. In May 2012, he had accessed the OFM and searched for Maureen Hardigan and discussed her kidnapping on the DFN with his co-conspirator. The access with no law enforcement purpose is the basis for the CFAA charge. The court denied Vail's motion for a judgment of acquittal to the CFAA count, justifiably, as the court concluded that his conduct fell squarely within the plain language of the CFAA because Vail had not been authorized to look up Hardigan's name without there being a reason for law enforcement. And finally, we're going to look at United States versus Nassau. Um, This case took place in 2017. In this case, David Nossel was the defendant, and the big question here is whether or not a person who obtains an account holder's permission to access a computer is accessing a computer without authorization when he acts without permission from the computer's owner. Um, So basically, this is just saying that they have access to the material, but they're using it um, for the purpose that it's not intended to be used for. Um, So in this case, Nossel worked for Corn Ferry International, which is a global executive search firm, And he had left to start his own firm, but before he left, he actually downloaded a bunch of material from Corn and Fairy's database so that way he could use it to start his own firm. And then later on, he also asked his former assistant to use her credentials to continue downloading the data even after he had left and had his own firm. So how did the case go? Nassau was indicted with eight counts under the CFAA. And he argued that the statutes only prohibit hacking into a computer, but not unfairly using the information. In fact, the court dismissed five of the counts under this argument, 
but Nossel still faced charges regarding using the password of a former assistant to access the information. He tried to argue these charges as well, but the majority rejected Nozzle's challenges. Nozzle then went to the Court of Appeals due to the fact that this decision would broaden the act. The Ninth Circuit stated that the computer owner has all the discretion under the CFAA, and then they disagreed with the Second and Fourth Circuit. Another group of the Ninth Circuit dissented, and the final conclusion was that the writ of certiorari should be granted. So some problems that go along with this case are that charging Nossel would result in expanding the territory of the act, making it more broad, which is one of the biggest problems that we have today, um, leading to more prosecutorial power. Um, Also, Judge Reinhardt dissented from the opinion and stated that it, quote, loses sight of the anti-hacking purpose of the CFAA and threatens to criminalize all sorts of innocuous conduct engaged in daily by ordinary citizens, end quote which I feel is a really eloquent way of dealing with the heart of the issue here. And I find that it's interesting how many of these past cases deal with the issue of exceeding authorized access, which I think each of us might have done at one point or another, um, as opposed to accessing without authorization, which you can clearly tell shouldn't be a practice of everyday citizens. Right. And the same issue of exceeding authorized access is the issue present in the current case, Van Buren v. U.S. So in this case, Nathan Van Buren was accused of taking money in exchange for looking up a license plate in a law enforcement database. Van Buren was a police officer in Georgia when he met Andrew Albo. Albo frequently called the police department Van Buren worked for, reporting that the women he would invite home stole his money. So it was reported that Albo, who, keep in mind, was quite wealthy, would pay prostitutes to come home with him and then accuse the women of stealing the money that he had given them. And Van Buren often responded to these calls. In 2015, uh, Van Buren told Albo that he was struggling financially and asked him for a loan, for which Albo agreed, asking for Van Buren to run a computer search for a license plate. However, unbeknownst to Van Buren, the conversation was being recorded and used in an FBI investigation. Van Buren received $5,000 from Albo in return for the favor, um, and he accessed the Georgia Crime Information Center and ran a search for the license plate number, thus, according to the court, violating the CFAA. Right, because he used the police database for improper use even though he had access to the database for work purposes. So clearly the issue here is that the CFAA makes it a federal crime to access a computer without authorization or exceed authorized access and thereby obtain information from any protected computer. Exceeding authorized access means to access a computer with authorization and to use such access to obtain or alter information in the computer that the accessor is not entitled to obtain or alter, like we said before. So therefore, the question becomes, is violating a website's terms of service a federal crime under the CFAA? If violating terms of service is a crime, private companies get to decide who goes to prison and for what putting us all at risk for everyday online behavior. That brings up a really good point. Um, The defense actually argues that 
millions of ordinary citizens use work computers for their own personal matters every day. Um, they continue their argument by saying that if the CFAA effectively incorporates all of these stated limitations, then any breach of such limitation from checking sports scores at work to inflating one's height on a dating website is a federal crime. They conclude their argument by claiming that Section 1030 of the CFAA was enacted in order to address the problem of unauthorized computer hacking, not to enforce private or public restrictions and transform them into federal crimes. So we understand that's a lot to follow. So let's go over what's happened so far in the case. The initial decision uh, came from the jury who convicted Van Buren on both counts. Then in the appellate court decision, the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, their decision issued on October 10th, 2019, were divided, four to three, over whether or not a person with permission violates the CFAA if they wrongfully use the information. So the Supreme Court is scheduled to review Van Buren versus U.S. later on this month on November 30th of 2020, so it's coming up. (laughs) Now, let's get into some discussion. First, I just want to say that it's unnerving to think that officials within government or law enforcement are using their technology that they're granted access to within the trust of the law for their own personal gain, and that would certainly champion the CFAA's restrictions. However, we see that it gets really messy, and like the defense argues, millions of ordinary citizens every day are probably using computers without access or within websites terms of use. So, do we think that violating a website's terms of service should be a crime, and why and why not? Personally, I think that this would result in too many people committing a crime that having the act would almost be counterproductive. Um, It would lead to so much focus on small um, violations for example, using a school's Wi-Fi to online shop um, or making a Facebook before you're old enough. And I just think that that would really waste so much time of prosecutors. It would take time away from the important cases like the hacking cases that we really do need to crack down on. Um, I know, for example, when I was in high school, we were all given a laptop. So when we were at school or at home, that laptop was only supposed to be used for school purposes. But you know that's not what people used it for. I was sitting there, I messaging my friends in class. I was online shopping. I technically, if this would be considered violating the terms of service, I would be a criminal, and I just I think that's too much. I think a bigger fear going along with that is the fact not only that prosecutors will enforce this to the extent where violating those little itty bitty um, terms of service things is bad, it'll be used to pretty much convict anyone they want to convict. Because every single person does it, they could literally just charge anyone with the C- with a CFAA violation and be able to get away with it and to convict them for a disproportionate number of years compared to what the crime might have been. And I think that's a big fear with why violating a website's terms of service should not be a crime. Because if you give it in if you give the power to like websites they could put pretty much anything in their terms of service and that would align with like prosecutorial discretion and power in a way that terrifies me personally and let's be real who reads the full terms and services <laughs> no one even opens it exactly <laughs> 
Right, and I know that there's a growing movement within America where people are afraid that very powerful privatized companies are colluding with government officials and hopefully not prosecutors, but at the end of the day, if the CFAA continues with this precedent of charging ordinary citizens for ordinary crimes that could honestly be written off as small mistakes or lapses in judgment, then we want to make sure that we're still protecting the people at the end of the day. So the Supreme Court has a lot to decide. So that leads us into our next discussion point. So as we know, the CFAA is a federal law, um, but should it be a federal crime or a state crime? Should simply violating a website's terms of service be charged federally? I would say no. It depends, obviously, to the degree um, of harm that the person who accessed the website inappropriately um, caused towards others, but I think most of the time these crimes are victimless, and I have a real issue with that being a federal crime. Yeah, that's a really good point to bring up. Like, the cases that we listed before, there were some that really had some victims there and definitely deserve to be prosecuted federally, but if you're just online shopping on a school computer or work computer, I don't think that that should lead you to be a federal criminal. Yeah, I agree. I think that obviously there's always going to be discretion with these cases and there are times when it can get really, really bad um, and affect lots of people. And I guess it's just how do we draw the line? Like we can't say that we want to do that it just all depends on the case because then there's no precedent and I feel like that that opens a whole new can of worms. I think the reason that, I mean, obviously it's a federal law is because the original intent was for national security purposes and that's something the federal government is supposed to handle. However, when you change the intent behind the law to criminalize more everyday behavior, and I'm not saying that every one of the cases we've talked about should be considered everyday behavior. Um, Personally, I don't think looking up a crush you have 65 times to figure out their address and their family's names and whatnot is okay. But um, I think it's a federal crime now because of that national security aspect. But what we've been talking about in a majority of these cases aren't national security violations. More of the reason is that when you use computers, you do engage in um, conduct that goes across state lines, which is also something that gets charged federally. But that's really the only tie-in I can find. Otherwise, it seems like a lot of these cases deal more with maybe conspiracy, which again, federal crime, but more so like stalking (laughs) or... um, just crimes that are local to like police officers so like accepting bribes so yeah it seems like we all basically agree that um violating a website's terms of service should not be a crime but how do we think the supreme court will judge um so i think that if we've listened to the previous podcast that we did um we talked about amy cody barrett and how she's kind of for limiting the amount of um, power that prosecutors have and stuff like that. So I think that we'll start to see a trend more of the Supreme Court actually wanting to get rid of these broad broad acts as well as 
um, trying to decrease prosecutorial power, and I think that that would lead to people ruling, the Supreme Court ruling with Van Buren instead of the United States. So I do agree with Taylor that Van Buren is likely going to win when he faces the Supreme Court. I think that this is a really important precedent that the Supreme Court is going to need to set, uh, just because such vague charges and statutes are really at a detriment to the average American citizen when they're going up against the federal government. And if it's vague, it certainly will fall into the prosecutor's power. Yeah, and it's important to note that, again, that this is the first time that a case involving the CFAA will go before the Supreme Court. So talking about precedent, it's a really, really important case. And yeah, I agree that I think Van Buren should win because even though he did accept a bribe to look up something, I think that should be more of the focus than him violating terms of the CFAA. And I also feel just the punishment should be proportionate to the crime. And when I think about people who have truly harmed innocent American citizens and they're possibly facing lower jail time and lower sentencing than people who get involved with internet hacking, personally... I see one group as being more dangerous and um, it, it more important to sense them more harshly than someone who misuses their work computer. Yeah, I mean, I do think that Van Buren is going to win this case just because we've seen a trend kind of of setting a precedent within the Supreme Court. Um, but I do think that there has to be some sort of... Um, not punishment, but I guess consequence for what he did because what he did was wrong still at the end of the de- at the end of the day. He did do something that was illegal as a police officer. So like Sarah said, I think that it needs to be more of a focus on the fact that he committed a crime and less on the fact that he exceeded authorized access to his work computer. And going off of that, bribes can happen without computers and internet so like if we're just charging him for not using like using unauthorized access and that kind of stuff like I feel like it kind of draws the attention away from the actual crime that he committed and the actual bribery so I think obviously everyone else switching it back over is definitely yeah so I guess we can talk about some of the broader implications of the Van Buren case and it what happens if he wins like what will come of that um i personally think that it makes it seem as though these cyber crimes are kind of okay to happen and while it is good that we're limiting prosecutorial power um i think it's kind of we're going in like the wrong direction with it because obviously like we don't want the CFAA to be able to make online shopping on a work computer a federal crime, obviously, but the fact that Van Buren was a police officer and took a bribe for a loan, like, he did use his computer for the wrong reasons, and I don't know, I'm a little iffy on that. Well, that actually makes me think just about other professions more generally. Um, When our group was developing this topic, we asked actually, is there a connection between other professions like doctors violating HIPAA and privacy and data rights, like Taylor mentioned, just not on a computer? Um, We obviously all recognize that that's very harmful to ordinary American citizens, but simply because 
more of us are on computers and using them improperly, that it's okay for people uh, violating the CFAA to just claim that the prosecutor's statutes are too vague. So I understand, and I actually agree with Sophia here, that it's still an issue. So yeah, so there are definitely implications for either side. If Van Buren wins, then it is limiting such an overarching definition of the CFAA that violating a website's terms of service should not be a federal crime, which I think is true. It shouldn't be a federal crime, and it definitely shouldn't be a federal crime under the CFAA, whose original intent is for hacking. Because prosecutors are the most powerful force we have in the courtroom, like they are the most powerful court actors, they decide who gets charged and with what. When they have malleable laws like the CFAA, it's really, really dangerous because we have this fear that anyone could be charged. So I think Van Buren winning is a step in the direction to limiting the CFAA, and it's an important precedent that the Supreme Court can set in the first case involving the CFAA that's ever reached that level of appeals. So now if we kind of look at the other side, what are the implications if the United States wins? Um, Personally, obviously, as we said before, that this is obviously going to lead to broader interpretation of the law and the CFAA, and it's going to give the prosecutors more discretion, um, which can be bad due to the fact that, as Sarah just said, prosecutors already have so much power. I would like to pose the question if because I'm generally curious about this. If the government wins, um, and let's say it, we have broader interpretations of the law, would that necessarily mean that we would see an influx in cases under the CFA, or would it stay about the same? It would just kind of be a little bit more wishy-washy. I have to say, I think that we would see an increase in charges underneath the CFAA, but not necessarily for that exact purpose. I think that that would allow prosecutors to not necessarily overcharge if the CFAA does allow for prosecutors to charge under infractions of the law, but maybe prosecutors who are actually charging against violence against women charges and stalking, um, but they're wanting to just tack on the CFAA charge because they know that the person's guilty and they want to see them behind bars for longer. So they might be able to use the CFAA as a convenient way to um, intimidate the defendant or make them look more guilty before a jury with all these numerous charges stacked. And not only that, even if we don't see an increase in cases being prosecuted, it's going to be there as precedent now. So if a case does come up, this, if the government wins, this Van Buren versus the United States case can always be used if it needs to be. So I guess like that's kind of the scarier part of it. Not necessarily that it's going to lead to more prosecuting, but if people do start to prosecute these cases, that precedent is already there and it's almost like they don't really have to question it anymore. I mean, the precedent can be questioned, but the issue becomes the fact that the Supreme Court, as we see it now, is going to remain that way for the next 10 to 20 years before we get a new change. So even if a case involving the CFA went back to the Supreme Court later, 
um, there is a good chance that they're not going to change their ruling and will instead reaffirm the judgment they make in this case. And if they judge that the Commonwealth, that the prosecutors win, then it does give the government that much more power. And to go along with that, I don't necessarily think there'll be more cases, but I do think it's going to be dangerous. It'll be a dangerous weapon for prosecutorial power because they'll be able to charge pretty much anyone they want with violating a website's terms of service. And I think that they can use that as a weapon against maybe political threats or enemies or what have you. So I do think that the government winning in this scenario is dangerous because of the precedent it sets. So just continuing our discussion and focusing on prosecutorial power, how can malleable laws be used to charge unrelated behavior or acts outside the original intent? So I have a few examples that I've just kind of thought up. And one for me would be if mail fraud didn't have such clear statutes and charges and sections, you know, let's say someone signs their grandfather's name when he wasn't actually there for the card to be signed and they write a really long message to, you know, just someone that they're addressing the card to. Technically, if that was some kind of fraudulent signature and then it was mailed through the U.S. postal system, something as innocent as that could be breaking some kind of charge or act and then it could be charged. Or um, if laws about intent to distribute weren't so clear, then that would be up to prosecutors to say, hey, we saw paraphernalia when we entered this suspect's house, and because we saw this small little bag, we believe that they had an intent to distribute without there being a clear kind of statement of what qualifies as an intent, and weights, and amounts, and things like that. And really, I think malleable laws and such vague wording come at a detriment to American citizens. Yeah, Maddie, I think it's really interesting that you bring up mail fraud because we have talked about a case on this podcast before where we discussed mail fraud being used as one of those malleable charges. In Series 2, Episode 2, the host discussed the Bridgegate scandal where individuals were convicted on mail fraud charges. Interestingly enough, the Supreme Court has unanimously overturned the Bridgegate convictions, stating that while there was misconduct, it should not be a federal crime under the mail fraud statute. So I think this, A, speaks to how the Supreme Court is dealing with these malleable laws now, and B, shows how malleable laws can be used to criminalize behavior that shouldn't necessarily be considered a federal crime. And I think the CFAA is another statute law issue similar to mail fraud. Um, I guess, do you think that there will ever be a time where the CFAA isn't malleable and there is just a strict definition of what you can and cannot do? I think that'll be difficult to achieve um, simply because we're in the age of technology and information and access is just becoming easier and easier. Um, And I think that as the web expands um, and people's technology to mask their IP addresses and um, the sites and data that they've accessed, it'll just become more difficult for anti-hackers and the government 
to prosecute the actually dangerous criminals out there, um, that maybe the wording needs to be kept somewhat vague, honestly. I also think that not only with technology cases and stuff like this, every single case is different. There's always going to be discretion. I think that applies to any case leading to interpretations of even a narrow law in a certain way. Like Everyone can always be like, but in this situation, it was different because of this. So I think that that's always going to be a problem that we have with any act or law. And I think if you go through most laws in pretty much any state or in the federal government, none of them are that narrow. They are all somewhat ambiguous. They all have definitions that don't really define what they're talking about. Um, As a criminal justice major, reading them is very, very hard to, and it's really hard to apply them in cases that I've had to do in some of my classes because of how vague they are. So I do think that um, there will not be a time when any statute is narrowed so much that it only can apply to one situation. They do have to be vague in order to function. But the CFAA is a little too vague right now, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it's kind of that happy medium that needs to be faced. Because obviously if it's too strict, then people who maybe commit the crime but aren't shouldn't necessarily be charged to the full extent are kind of screwed as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, and if laws are narrow, you basically have to create a new one for every situation that should be a criminal act. Because like Maddie said, this is a discussion on how malleable laws can be used to charge unrelated behavior. But if you look at it from the other angle, narrow laws can't can maybe not be used to charge behavior that should definitely be considered criminal. And there's a very wide margin of like what should be considered okay. And I think right now the CFAA gives prosecutors a little bit too much power. As we've seen in some cases, they were able to charge people for violating a website's terms of service or by simply doing a search that exceeded their authorized access. And in those, it might have been a little ridiculous to make it a federal crime with such strict sentencing. So in general, malleable laws, I would say, are dangerous, but it's hard because laws do have to be somewhat malleable. And there we have the dilemma (laughs) of making laws. Yeah, so obviously we talked today about a bunch of problems with the CFAA. So I kind of just want to pose the question, how can the CFAA be improved or what changes should be made so that way we can make it less malleable or anything that you guys feel? Well, I think as we've discussed, there needs to be more specific definitions as to what unauthorized access means or anything. All of the terms within the definition of the CFAA need to be more clearly defined so that it makes it a little bit harder for prosecutors to just interpret as they please. Yeah. Yeah, as we read earlier with the protected computers definition, it basically just said the same words repeatedly in different orders and it was very confusing to understand. So I definitely think making the definitions a little more clearer um, should help. And Also, the punishment really does not seem proportionate to the majority of uh, these offenses that 
people are committing here under the CFAA. Um, for instance, there's a website that we were using for our research, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who actually cites a 2011 case where an MIT student, Aaron Schwartz, um, used his college's um, servers to download thousands of um, academic articles and then attempt to distribute them to his peers. And then under the CFAA, he was actually facing 35 years in prison. And as a result, two years later in 2013, he um, died by suicide. And so as we can see, this is having a real harm on um, you know, average American citizens who, while they're not making the best choices, certainly uh, the punishment isn't proportionate to their offenses. And so the Electronic Frontier Foundation um, has a few suggestions for cleaning up the CFAA's wording. So as a general principle, they say that minor violations of the CFAA should be punishable with minor penalties. And the way that the vague wording is currently, first-time offenders can easily be charged with felonies instead of misdemeanors, which I think is pretty unfair. I also think that seems very, very unfair, especially when the acts are being charged with aren't violations of national security like the act was originally intended for. Like those severe punishments make sense if you're harming the United States as a whole or if you're hacking into governmental databases for terrorist issues. But just with these minor offenses, like with using the school network to download articles or using your database to look up a friend, like it does not seem like those acts should be punishable by these severe sentences. It definitely seems like the penalties should be more proportionate to the offenses. Um, well, the other aspect to that is that several sections of the CFA are pretty redundant with other parts of the law, um, and it kind of allows prosecutors to double dip to pursue, pursue multiple offenses based on the same behavior. Um, and so basically, it kind of allows prosecutors to ratchet up the, pres the pressure for a plea bargain um, by threatening a defendant with decades of jail time, which absolutely is not fair um, and could definitely use some, some work. So as Sophia said, you know, prosecutors are able to count the same actions more than once, and it's double dipping really, and I think it even just gets into the just kind of vague understanding of information access. So if you're accessing information it's all the same information, but if you do it multiple times, then can a prosecutor say that you have X many charges for accessing the same information because you did it repeatedly? And so I just think that there are so many issues here with the CFAA's wording that it's really going to come you know, to the detriment of American citizens. If a prosecutor wants to see them behind bars, they could easily do so. Yeah, it definitely seems like they could increase the counts for the different charges, too. So the more counts you have, that also um, affects how much punishment you receive. And I also see an issue here because it's not necessarily overcharging, because they are doing that behavior, and they can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law that they are engaging in that behavior repeatedly. So... 
it, it isn't necessarily overcharging in the sense where prosecutors will tack on charges where there's only like a little bit of evidence for in order to get people to plea or try to reduce down. So I, I see an, a real issue there that if they are allowed to double dip, it'll really increase the punishment and there's not much people can do about it. I think my viewpoint kind of on how we can improve this, I feel like we just get deeper and deeper into the broadening of the act when people we just continue to add on to it so i feel like instead of making amendments or changes to the cfaa maybe like doing a different act that has to deal with misusing information or um stuff along that side of these cases like obviously yes they're if they're hacking then it can fall into the cfaa but as we've seen in these cases there's no hacking they have the access they have other people's permission to do so. Um, so I think that maybe if we create another act that focuses solely on misusing the information, it can lead to um, more narrow convictions and um, prosecutorial power. So would your suggestion be that the CFAA should only be used for hacking-related cases and nothing else? Or are you saying that you would want to get rid of it completely and just create a new act for other charges oh no still keep it keep it and keep it for what its intended purposes was like obviously we need it for the hacking and stuff like that but I think that we're kind of just going down a slippery slope continuously adding stuff to it and trying to broaden it um so I think we keep it for the intended purposes of the hacking because we do still have that issue but I think adding the misusing information I think it's two completely separate um crimes that we can't really combine and right, I would hope that, you know, if Taylor opened up a fake Instagram account in my name and was pretending to be me and asking for my family members to, you know, send her money through an electronic account, that that could be handled in a civil court and it would be a much smaller matter rather than a federal issue where technically she was violating commerce terms and she was impersonating me and someone could really easily rack up all the charges, but that's so different from someone attempting to hack into Visa's headquarters and truly cause some real destruction. And so I feel like the issue is in the semantics and the wording here. So would you think that a separate act should be more of like a state-driven act to do that, or should it be a federal law because it does involve interstate commerce in a way, or crimes crossing interstate lines? That's the reason why it is charged federally now. I just think the important word here is proportion, and it needs to remain proportionate to the offense. And so Mm -hmm. if that means drawing up several different acts and um, charges that are much more specific, then Mm -hmm. I guess that's what it takes. Yeah, and there is a way where states could maybe add on to laws about like impersonation or... um, identity theft or violence against women in stalking (laughs) or violence against women in stalking to involve how computers can be used in that regard because a lot of the statutes do have multiple 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 ways in which you can be faced with those charges so adding it onto those state statutes might be a little bit better than making it a federal crime and the proportion of sentencing might be a little bit more fair Um, because it does involve those kinds of victims, whereas right now we're charging it as if it's a national security threat when it's not. Yeah, and I think going off of the proportion aspect, like, 
the whole goal of this act isn't just to put people in jail and forget about them. Like, the whole point of our um, justice system is to make people, to have people not do this anymore. Like, we don't want to just um, punish these people. For example, the college student who was supposed to go to prison for 35 years, like, that's not teaching him anything. That's not going to influence him to never to not do what he did again. Like, that is ridiculous. And I think that if we focus more on, like, hey, like, what could be, what could we do to prevent this from happening in the future? Like, what kind of um, sentencing or punishment would kind of help reflect on that rather than um, just dealing with it and getting it done with, which I feel like is kind of what's happening now. Yeah, but I do think that's also just an issue with our criminal justice system as a whole. We are very much more focused on retribution and deterrence instead of um, rehabilitation. So that's a whole nother can of worms we're trying to open up right now. Yeah. <laughs> that can be a different different day. Yeah, different, different podcast. <laughs> so to conclude... The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act was enacted in order to combat unauthorized computer hacking, but where is the line drawn? While the case of Van Buren versus United States has yet to be decided, past cases have shown that it is stretched to cover a multitude of scenarios, especially ones where individuals have access to information through work and use it for unauthorized purposes. So once again, we've been able to conclude that the prosecutor is the most powerful court actor because they not only decide what behavior counts as a crime and what crimes should be charged, but malleable acts and laws like the CFAA can be used by prosecutors to criminalize behavior. And, you know, oftentimes it's highly contested whether that behavior should be criminal. So guys, look out for November 30th when Van Buren versus United States goes to the Supreme Court because like we said, it's the first Supreme Court case involving the CFAA and could become a landmark in how the Supreme Court will rule on that law. Okay, so we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Here's our social media and contact info. So you can find the Politics of Prosecution podcast on both iTunes and Spotify. Please follow us on Twitter at P-O-L-I underscore P-R-O-S. Our Instagram, P-O-L-I dot N dot P-R-O-S. And then please leave comments, questions, or concerns, even criticisms, in the comments or email us at poly.n.pros at gmail.com. Thank you.